Hi, this is Marshall Toplansky. And Joel Kotkin. And welcome to the Feudal Future podcast. If you're listening, it means you're interested in creating a better future, one that values diverse discussion and preserves opportunity for the middle and working classes. This is why we started the show, to bring together ideas and people that challenge the notion of a hierarchical, socially stagnant, and centrally programmed future. Maybe you've experienced the rising costs of home ownership, diminishing job prospects, or the burden of over-regulation and increasingly censorship. This is happening in cities everywhere, and we recognize the need for new action. For this reason, we created the Beyond Feudalism Facebook group, a place for you to connect and share resources with like-minded people. Here you'll be able to ask questions, network, and share your own stories and ideas on how we can bring opportunity and common sense back into our civil discourse and governance. Consider this a hub for all things feudal, where we'll be sharing insights from our recent Beyond Feudalism report with Chapman University, clips and highlights from the podcast, and links to related content on topics such as housing, education, energy, transportation, and entrepreneurship. Much of our focus has been so far on California, but we expect to see this work and apply this work to conditions around the world. Well, as you can probably tell, we're not too excited about the path we're currently on as a society, but we are hopeful for what's possible. And if we can better understand what's happening and build momentum to overcome the trends, so much the better. So we encourage you to join the Facebook group via the link below to get involved and keep up-to-date information on all new developments. And for more information, my new book, The Coming of Neo-Feudalism, outlines everything that's happening and where we need to change. The link to that is also in the show description. So thank you very much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy the show. There's a very deeply ingrained tendency for us to think we're totally in control and that the human choices and human factors are what shape our outcomes. And I think this chapter of history can help us be more sensitive to the reality that the world of nature is inseparable from the world of humanity. This is Joel Kotkin. And this is Marshall Toplansky. And you're listening to the Feudal Future Podcast. Our society is being rapidly reduced to a feudal state, a process now being exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic. Millions of small businesses are near extinction. Millions more are losing their jobs, and many others will be stuck in the status of propertyless serfs. The big winners have been the expert class of the clerisy, and most of all, the tech oligarchs who benefit as people rely more on algorithms than human relationships. With this, around the world, the middle class is becoming more squeezed than ever. And it's having profound economic, social, and spiritual implications. Here on the show, we're having conversations with business, government, and citizen leaders like you to get to the core of these issues and explore how we can work together to form a better future than the one we're headed towards. Hello, and welcome to another Feudal Future podcast. 
I'm Marshall Toplansky. I'm Joel Kotkin. And today we are delighted to have as our guest, Professor Kyle Harper from the University of Oklahoma. Kyle, welcome. Greetings. Thanks for having me. You are a uh, professor of classics at uh, University of Oklahoma, and your new book that has come out, well, not so new, I guess it's about a year old now, is just, Joel and I were so excited to read it. It's called The Fate of Rome, Climate, Disease, and the End of an Empire. And it is so timely because of the parallels between what was happening in ancient Rome that ultimately killed the empire and factors that we're seeing in our own environment. Thanks for having me and, and for the kind words. I'm excited to, to get to talk about what we can learn from studying the role of particularly infectious diseases and the big picture of human history. Yeah, so, so you know, the impression I get is that uh, the fall of Rome was more about germs than Germans. So... Um, <laughs> <laughs> so tell us about that. What, you know, how did disease play a role in the fall of Rome? Right. Well, I think uh, I'd start by saying that every generation of historians looks back to the past with the eyes of the present. And that's both inevitable. And I think it's also, at least to some extent, a good thing because you see things differently. You, you're sensitive to look for, for layers of, of the human past that maybe other generations had passed over. And that's true when Edward Gibbon did it, when he wrote the, the Great Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. He was an Enlightenment guy, and he was very influenced by the, the intellectual world that he lived in and concerned about the difference between reason and religion. So he looked at the past through those lenses, and he wrote a great work of history that, that drew on kind of his own experience and his prejudices, but still stood the, the test of time. So I think we always look back to the past with, with concerns that are informed by the present. And and we live in an age where obviously environmental issues are, are quite important. And as well, we're, we're learning so much that we didn't know. I always think as a historian, to me at least, it's exciting to try and say something that's new. And we know a lot more than we did five, certainly 10 years ago about things like climate change in human history, and particularly infectious disease in human history. And so before the COVID-19 pandemic, I'll just point out, we lived in a, a time where there was obviously, there were voices warning us about the, the dangers of merging diseases and new pandemics. And that was one of the things that's motivated me and interested me is where can we learn about the past that we didn't know and looking at the history of biology and history of infectious diseases. And I think that one of the really big factors in human history is infectious disease changes in infectious disease, geographical differences in the disease burden, and then chronological changes, big mortality shocks. The Roman period, to me, stands out as a period, particularly in the later centuries of the Roman Empire, when there were a series of really big biological shocks. Every age has some kind of variability in mortality, but if you look objectively, some periods of the past in the big picture have these really violent mortality shocks that are caused by infectious disease. And that the cause of these is inextricably biological. It has to do with what are the pathogens that evolve and show up. And so in the, the later centuries of the Roman Empire, there's evidence for these really big outbreaks in the second, third, and then particularly in the sixth century. And that's the one that we know the most about, and probably I think the one that killed the most people and was the most important that was caused by the bubonic plague, the bacterium Yersinia pestis. And I think now we can look at the past, and diseases aren't the only thing. History is never that reductive. 
But I think we can tell this story and include this character that had been missing from the play. And when we go back and look at it, they were there. I mean, diseases played a, a major role. Of course, the barbarians still matter. And, and I love a, a catchy line as much as the next guy. Um, <laughs> the, the Germans are still part of the story. They're pretty, pretty influential. But I don't think you should now tell the story without the germs or without the Germans. <laughs> Let's pull that back just a touch. How big a shock was it? Just like thinking about COVID today, we just passed recently a milestone of a million people on the planet killed. How does that compare to what the Romans experienced? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question. And it lets you kind of also frame some of the important differences, because I'd say in the past, the mortality shocks were much, much bigger than COVID. But in other ways, their societies were more resilient than ours. In some ways, they didn't have science and the kind of biological tools that we have. But in another way, they were kind of used to high levels of mortality and fluctuations in mortality, whereas our world is less resilient in some ways because we're so darn dependent on a level of control that's so extreme that even a smaller disruption or smaller biological shock has sort of sent us into this semi-crisis. So when we, we look back in the, the Roman examples, I'll start by, you know, we could talk forever about how we don't know because we don't have the same kind of government statistics. So there's a huge range of, of legitimate opinion. But I do think the shocks were much bigger. I think the plague in the, the second century, which wasn't bubonic plague, it was a pestilence, I think it was probably the emergence of the smallpox virus, but we don't know that absolutely with certainty. People have debated the the range. If you let me pick a number, I'd probably say around 10% of the entire population. So we're talking in an empire of 75 million, you're talking 7, 8 million people dying. So think of what's the population of America? Is it 375? 350 million, roughly. Yep. 350. So that'd be like 35 million Americans dying. And that was the, the lesser of the, the two really big plagues in the, the sixth century, the bubonic plague. And again, we don't, there's a lot of debate, but the mortality tolls from that disease are the worst in human history. Uh, I think it's the same disease. It is the same disease that causes the Black Death. We actually know a lot about the Black Death in the 14th century. We have a lot more historical evidence, very good, rich documents that we don't have in my Roman case. And the, the 14th century Black Death kills 50 to 60% of the population of Europe. So just imagine the level of shock and disruption of losing half the population. It changes everything. In fact, one of the great Arab social thinkers, Ibn Khaldun, says yeah. the whole entire world changed. And that's, I, mean, I think that's the best summary you can, you can give for a disease event like that. In some places, it, it ruins the economy for centuries. In other places, it really stimulates change and the end of feudalism, since, since we're uh, on a podcast called The Feudal Future. You know, this is kind of a classic theory. It can sometimes be overstated, but there's still an important element of truth to it in Northwestern Europe that the biological shock of the plague in the 14th century has really profound institutional changes on serfdom, on freedom and the power of laborers. So these kind of biological shocks in the past, short answer, much bigger than COVID, and in some cases were profound. In other cases, they were kind of used to, to having high levels of volatility in the mortality rate. One of the really 
quintessential changes that ushers in the modern world is that human societies figure out how to control infectious disease. And one of the really first things they figure out is how to control outbreaks from becoming crises that spiral out of hand. And so you have 200, 250 years of social and economic development that depends on a progressively greater control of infectious disease. But that control is obviously imperfect and we're living through an episode where we're seeing how fragile in some ways our societies are to these kind of disruptions. One thing I wonder about is, and I'm not completely clear about it, is obviously the Roman Empire existed before these pestilences, you know, and it was already a global empire. It already had acquired Egypt, acquired large parts of the Middle East, had gone all the way to England. Why all of a sudden in the second or third century we get this outbreak? Because we're always asking ourselves, why has it been so long since we had anything like this? What were the triggers that took place that took what had been a usual disease pattern to something more catastrophic? Yeah, and I mean, I think philosophically that's a, that's a very to me, a very rich and profound question that has to involve both biology and kind of the social sciences, because you clearly have these two levels that are working together on very different time scales. One of them is predictable. One of them is very unpredictable. So in some ways, we can say that the Romans of the second century are vulnerable to this kind of event because of the kind of society that they create. So it's relatively urbanized, not compared to our world, but for a pre-industrial society, it's pretty urbanized. I mean, 10, 15% of the population probably lives in, in towns of a few thousand or more, which historically is pretty dense. And it's very interconnected. So the Romans create this giant zone of free trade that, as you say, connects from the Red Sea to, to the Atlantic. And it's relatively integrated. So there's a lot of exchange, including of bulk goods, manufactured goods, agricultural goods are moving, particularly over the Mediterranean Sea, quite in mass. And then it's a, it's a globally interconnected world. So I think we use the word globalization pretty loosely and historians use it very loosely. And we kind of think of it as a, it is a contemporary phenomenon where, you know, American pop culture and McDonald's, the internet can spread ideas globally instantaneously, but globalization has different historical phases. And in the Roman period and the iron age, you do start to get, I think a very important phase in the history of globalization where there's regular trade happening across the Sahara, across the Indian Ocean, and across the Silk Roads. And those are the kind of three big intercontinental highways, the Indian Ocean, the Silk Roads, and the Sahara. And a thousand years before, there's not that much stuff. The Indian Ocean trade isn't, isn't really moving much material until the development of Han China and the Persian empires of Central Asia and the, the Romans start kind of regular intercontinental exchange. So all of that's at the human level. And you can kind of describe what are the risk factors and, and how did humans shape ecology. But then there is this almost essential randomness that has to do with biological evolution. And I think you can learn from, from COVID. So in some ways, this kind of disease event was at one level very predictable. 
humans were almost 8 billion. We put tremendous pressure on natural resources, massive agro-industry that supports evolution of pathogens, very highly interconnected, the age of jet travel. We have very good preemptive controls for a lot of bacterial diseases, but respiratory viral diseases. If you talked to an infectious disease expert five years ago, and I remember having dinner with, with one the Santa Fe two or three years ago, who in fact said, you know, it's going to be influenza or a coronavirus. You know, there's certain elements of this that were, were kind of predictable. We are very vulnerable to a respiratory virus because of the kind of world that we create. On the other hand, there's this dimension of it that's very hard to predict because it has to do with random molecular evolution. And nobody would have predicted that uh, this particular coronavirus from this particular bat would have adapted to human receptors um, at this particular moment. And so the the randomness of that and the kind of timescales that are required to see the eventual happening of these kind of evolutionary events are what combine to create these historical episodes. So same with the Roman Empire. They had these risk factors, but at the same time, who knew that smallpox, which is also a mammal disease. It's probably really a rodent disease in its deeper evolutionary history. What makes this virus adapt the ability to spread very efficiently between humans? It's also a respiratory virus. Is kind of essentially random. So it's the conjunction. So if I'm hearing you correctly, that you know, there's so much blame that's being placed on density as a super spreader in essence, right? The idea that we're so packed together in an environment, especially with larger cities, that, you know, you're going to have greater disease rates in more dense places. The data seems to show that. But if I hear you correctly, what you're saying is that actually, given the interconnectedness of the global economy and the natural evolved movement of people across places, across regions, that actually it wouldn't make that much of a difference today. You'd still end up having some kind of spread, regardless of whether you had rural versus urban concentrations. If you kind of peanut butter spread, everybody equally got rid of the distribution spikes of density, you would probably still have a lot of vulnerability to viruses. Is that right? I agree with what you're saying, but I'd want to emphasize that both density and connectivity really matter. And what we're talking about is really trying to look at the world through the eyes of a, of a microparasite. And to them, whether you're talking about the smallpox virus or the COVID, SARS-CoV-2, whether you're talking about tuberculosis, we're just a host. We're just a, a bundle of energy and cells they can hijack or, or rob. And so anything that we do that changes their evolutionary prospects will influence them. So yes, if we're more densely packed together, the hosts are are closer together. Probably the hardest problem for a parasite is how do I get my offspring to the next host? And that's probably the, uh, every parasite has two really big problems. We have very good immune systems and you have to get from one host to the next. And when we live differently, when we travel, trade, densify, we're changing the game for the parasites because we're closer together. So both density and connectivity are really fundamentally changing the potential epidemiology of a disease. And and so 
pathogens have taken advantage of this ever since humans started building cities, particularly for respiratory pathogens. It's hard to get from host to host. People have to be sharing the same space. And so pathogens like tuberculosis, like measles, smallpox, influenza, the coronaviruses are all respiratory pathogens that take advantage of the fact that we live in such an interconnected and dense way. So I, I do think cities are really fundamental for creating disease environments then and now. And uh, you know, I'm not an expert on the epidemiology of coronavirus, but I do think from what I understand, there's still a lot that's very mysterious, even with the whole, you know, we've got everybody in the world trying to, to resolve this. And it's amazing well, we, how complex it is. Actually, but, we've but, done some work on this where we show the prevalence of this relative to density and the, the rates that are really dramatically different all over the world by density. Yeah. We already, Wendell Cox, our colleague, has done that, that work. But here's one question I have, and it actually intrigued me while reading the book. I understand the Roman Empire, lots of trade, lots of centralization, big cities. Why does the worst of all possible epidemics take place in the Middle Ages when trade was far more limited, particularly in Europe, and cities were very small? Is there any contradiction there, or um, Do you mean is there the, some different explanation? The 6th century or the 14th century? I'm thinking about the 14th. I'm thinking, you know, I read uh, Tuckman's book about the 14th century. Yeah. Quite good. Yeah, and I mean, and that's still a great read. It's pretty long in the tooth. But I, I think increasingly people see the Black Death as kind of inseparable from what I would call old world globalization. And really the the 12th and the 13th centuries see a really massive expansion of intercontinental trade. Looking at it from Western Europe, which is kind of the, the hinterland. You're thinking more like the Italian Renaissance cities. It's the Italian Renaissance cities, but even even more than that, it's the you know it's the Mamluk dynasty in Egypt, all the way to Song and then Yuan, China, where the real action is. China is far more urbanized and developed in the the 12th and 13th centuries than even the Italian city states, which are the most developed part of Europe. And then into that world, you kind of have the Mongols that crash in the particularly the 13th century that set up this trans-eurasian political system that links across the steppe and so there's there's this old world trading system that's mostly overland a lot of it goes through the old silk roads a lot of it from the 13th and particularly in the 14th century goes across a northern route across the steppe and you very clearly have the Venetians and the Genoese with a foothold in the Black Sea. And they're shipping grain from the Black Sea, but they're also very interested in long-distance trade with China. And the Mongols helped to open up this northern route mm. across the steppe, which is very clearly how the Black Death comes. I mean, Black Death is caused by the plague, which is a Central Asian rodent disease. And so the Mongols create this northern highway that is what ultimately facilitates the, the spread of the Black Death. And it it shows up in the Black Sea in 1346 and is there in, in Tana, which is one of these big Genoese trading cities. And they, they bring it to the Mediterranean, to the Near East, to Europe. So I, I think the Black Death really is kind of caught up in this spike in, in trade in the late That's Middle right. Ages. 
from studying both the medieval problems and the Roman problems, is there anything we can learn from that? Any, I mean, you always hope that you can learn from history. Are there any lessons that maybe, you know, our political leaders and the global political leaders might be thinking about from these experiences? Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a question I've been thinking a lot about because you definitely want to have something <laughs> useful to say in the in the midst of a, a pandemic. And I admit it's it's very hard because the Roman response, you know, the world is so different. And then the response isn't doesn't resemble a modern response. We have we have public health, we have infectious disease biology, and it's really though the kind of enlightenment science and the rise of modern germ theory and public health that liberate us from this almost unbelievable vulnerability to infectious disease. So the Romans don't have any effective response. They fundamentally don't understand the causes of infectious disease. Their response tends to be very religious. So their coordinated response of the Roman state to the, say, the pandemic of the second century is to organize large-scale sacrifices. The Greek cities organized large-scale sacrifices to the god Apollo. Doesn't work. <laughs> and so, you know, we don't, we don't really learn from their their handling of it. But I do think we learn to see our world differently. And and there's a very deeply ingrained tendency for us to think we're totally in control and that, that human choices and human factors are what shape our outcomes. And I think this chapter of history can help us be more sensitive to the reality that the world of nature is inseparable from the world of humanity. And the choices that we make will have very unpredictable consequences because we are part of the great ecosystem of, of the planet. And I do think that this kind of history can help us, it could have helped us be more aware of the threats, but it also can help us see that this threat, this current crisis could be worse. I mean, I think that's complementary to what infectious disease experts say. COVID-19 is a a severe disease. It's obviously many times worse than the flu, which worth underscoring, flu's a pretty nasty disease. You know, in the in the, in the scheme of ordinary diseases, it's not smallpox or plague, but flu's a fairly nasty disease, and COVID's many times more severe. And yet, not to downplay it, but just to have objective perspective, COVID nineteen is it's not that severe of a disease compared to the the realm of possibilities. Even the other emergent coronaviruses like SARS-1 or MERS, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, cause a much worse clinical disease. So one thing that we'll need to come away from this crisis with is a realization that historically this was bound to happen, and historically it's going to happen again. This wasn't an anomaly. And the next one could be much worse. So how do we prepare for an event that could be an even bigger shock to our system? Yeah, so this is a great wake-up call is what you're really saying. And just think of how much great stuff we have to look forward to. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, maybe this is, I mean, one of the few silver linings is it really, it, there needs to be a lot of social science work as well as a lot of soul-searching. I mean, I think I love my country, but it's been very difficult to watch the the response. And it's a very challenging disease, very beguiling disease. And there's a element of luck in the outcomes. But what's been interesting is it's not really, you know, that the authoritarian countries have done great or that all the liberal 
constitutionalist countries have done great. You have mixed, you have authoritarian regimes that have done great and terrible. You have constitutional regimes that have done great, that have done terrible. And so there's going to be a lot of work to figure out where did we go wrong and not just simple answers and kind of anti-Trump that's part of it, but but it goes deeper. And, and I think it probably has to do with social capital and maybe silver lining as we can look at that in a mature way. You know, it's interesting that you say that the response in ancient Rome to the plagues was basically religious. It was kind of, let's see how we can balm our, you know, our souls and forget about or feel better about our loss, as opposed to the scientific kind of approach that we're seeing today of let's be proactive, let's create a scientific, a science-based response. You know, I wonder whether or not just the simple lack of knowledge in the sciences in that era is the big contrast between today, right? We now have so much more information and many more levers to pull just by virtue of our knowledge that society didn't have in the ancient Rome. Yeah, there's something important there. And I mean, one of the one of the really obvious takeaways from COVID-19 is that it's not just about the science. I mean, America has the best scientific infrastructure in the world. I mean, and and saying close. And our response has been so muddled. And clearly the the importance of social and behavioral dimensions of this will hopefully lead us to realize that the solutions aren't going to be technical. And that is something you learn from history is, you know, it's not just science and technology. It's it's how they get translated into the action and how communities understand and use them. It really matters. And you see this in the in the history of infectious disease. People figure out germ theory, but then some countries are really quick and effective in acting on it. And not just European ones, Japan is as well. I think we we need to have a deeper understanding of why some countries are good at that and why some are bad. Because, you know, the, even when we have a vaccine, this problem isn't just going to go away. I mean, I'm very worried about the administration of the vaccine on a national scale. And it's not the technical challenges. It's not the microbiology of building a you know, messenger RNA vaccine, which are significant enough, but it's going to be the communication and behavioral aspects. Logistical and attitudinal. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, you know, that's one of the things I'm actually, I'm working on an essay now about COVID and religion. One of the things I picked out of your book was how the Christians actually did well out of the pestilence because they actually took care of people and whether or not it would seem to me that part of the problem is that we allow people to live in such terrible conditions that they're inevitably going to get sicker so that maybe there's more of a sort of social reform aspect. You know, I can tell you here in, in California in particular, our worst rates of fatalities are in exactly the same zip codes that have the most overcrowded housing. You know, and whether or not maybe really in some senses we haven't really come to grips with the fact that how people are living is making this so much worse and that some of the solutions may be more in the realm of social services and social welfare than just scientific. You know, obviously the scientific answer to this is everybody stay in their house and do nothing. And if you're an upper middle class person with a four bedroom house, that works reasonably well. It doesn't work so well in East L.A. Yeah. And so I wonder if there's any sort of need to think about those social aspects. I think it's really interesting that when you're saying that the our obsession with just the technical 
I think misses the point in a lot of ways. Yeah. And that is a, a tension that is as old as public health. I mean, that, that exact tension has been going on for 200 years between what kind of reform do we need? Do we need technical solutions or do we need to address more systemic root causes? And it's the case in Western Europe with the, the origins of the public health movement. And it continues right through the 20th and even 21st century on a global scale. Do you, do you try and promote economic development to promote health or do you do you just kind of swoop in with with antibiotics and vaccines and get rid of the disease and hope that economic development follows that but i i think you're really on to, to something there it'll be interesting in today's context if we're able to to step back and and look at, at ways we can we can address both because obviously you need the, the scientific technical fixes but it'll be important to take stock of things beyond that as well, like you're talking about. Well, I think this is a perfect spot to wrap. Kyle Harper, thank you so much for joining us on the Feudal Future thank podcast. You all. We look forward to, to having you back when you publish your new book on the history of infectious disease. It's a deal. Thank you. Thank you.